Well, today, saints, we're again considering corporate worship, the liturgy, what we do every single Sunday morning and afternoon. And I hope that these have been um, helpful for you because we are not this afternoon, uh, rather this morning, Pastor Antonio talked a lot about um, our nature and that which is um, uh, innate within us to do certain things, right? One of the things is to sing. Um, so with regard to who we are as human beings, we all want to do things for some sort of rhyme or reason. In fact, I would argue that you can't do things to its maximum capacity unless you know exactly what you're doing the thing for. So in corporate worship, if we have a better understanding of what we are doing and why we are doing it, we will be able to do as what Pastor Antonio said this morning as I'm going to elaborate also in this afternoon is sing with our hearts. Sing with minds, wills, with the passions and all that. So this afternoon... We're going to consider um, worship from an angle that's been touched already by Pastor Antonio in a sermon titled, What Happens When We Worship? What Happens When We Worship? If you go back and listen to that sermon, um, it will be of great benefit to you. While I was listening to that sermon, though, one of the things that stuck out to me, though, is um, a second point that he made concerning what happens when we worship. And that second point was this, that God changes us. That in corporate worship, God changes us. It's very different, right, from the from the ordinary things that we do in life, specifically our job, because our job doesn't necessarily change us ontologically. It doesn't change who we are. In fact, in many ways, it might make us worse. It might make us more angry or more frustrated. Or if you loved your job, you might be more um, <laughs> happy or whatever. When we consider corporate worship, though, as Pastor Antonio said, the, the, the first two things that happen is, number one, God meets with us. A privilege that we have, is it not, that the God of the universe meets with his people, but also that in corporate worship, something happens to our nature. Now, when, I, when, you, when you hear nature, essentially what that means is something happens to our humanity. Something happens to our humanity. And this second point that Pastor Antonio hit upon in his sermon is what we're going to consider this afternoon. Yes, in corporate worship, there is a primacy, which is God and God alone. God is to be the center of corporate worship. God is the reason, or rather the worship of God is the reason why we wake up to give to God that which is properly owed. So already off the bat... The central focus of corporate worship is to give to God that which is properly owed, which is worship. We give to God worship, and that's what He is owed and due. Yet, saints, we aren't to think that in giving to God that which is properly owed and due, that God doesn't do something to us. And this is really the kindness of God, is it not? Because we give to God something that He's owed, and He gives to us something that we are not owed. Now, it doesn't mean because of our worship He gives to us something. But what it means is because we're united to Christ, He gives to us something. What does He give to us, saints? What does He give to us? Well, I want to argue this afternoon that in corporate worship, God deifies us. In corporate worship, God deifies us. Or we can say, in corporate worship, 
through sanctifying an actual grace, and by and through the liturgy, we are made partakers of the divine nature. Now, that sounds very strange already off the bat. Like, this might be a snoozer type of <laughs> sermon because it sounds very sci-fi-ish. What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? And how in the world does the liturgy, how is the liturgy the privileged means by which God communicates His divine life unto us? It's very strange. We don't think in these ways. In fact, I had a friend I was talking to yesterday on the phone, over, and I was talking to him about this stuff. And he said, you know, one of the things that... Um, one of the things that is so encouraging is you speaking these truths to your people because the reform don't the reform don't speak about what happens in corporate worship and its connections to us receiving the life of God and becoming like God. The reason why is because most of what you'll hear is normally what you find in Eastern Orthodoxy. Where in the liturgy, we would say the divine liturgy, God gives to us his divine life. But saints, consider what happens in corporate worship. The Reformed like to talk about corporate worship and us receiving the means of grace. A means of grace being the preached word. Through the preached word, you get grace. Through the sacraments, you receive grace. Through prayer, you receive grace. Well, if what we do as a Reformed church in corporate worship, not only giving to God worship, but also receiving grace, then we have to ask, what is grace? What does grace do to us? Well, grace is not merely just unmerited favor, although it is. But grace is also a participation in the life of God. So if, if grace, or rather, since grace is a participation in the life of God, and in corporate worship, we're receiving grace, then what does that mean for us? Then you're actually becoming like God in corporate worship. As Pastor Antonio said, and others have said before him and even after him, we become what we worship. If we become what we worship in a worldly sense, then can't we become what we worship in a more spiritual, divine sense? Of course we can. In fact, that's what God has... That's, what, that's the reason for the corporate worship of the saints. The, re, the reason for the corporate worship of the saints, of course, is to worship God, but also it is, to, it is for man to receive the destiny that Adam forfeited and lost, but in Christ we have achieved, which is the elevation of who we are to be like God, to be like Christ. So... Um, we're going to consider um, uh, corporate worship and deification with just two points. And number one, a review of deification. And number two, corporate worship as the means by which we become like God. Um, when you think of deification, saints, uh, and I'm going to give you a little bit... I'm, I'll give you a review of what we've talked about before. I've already done a sermon on this, but I'll give you a little review. When you think of deification, you can think of it as sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is that process by which you are becoming holy and like God. Well, that is essentially what deification is. Becoming like God. So sanctification is really deification. For you to be deified. To be like your creator. 
The church fathers love to speak about deification. You have the great Athanasius in the 4th century who says that famous line, Man, for the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Or you have Clement of Alexandria saying, Yeah, I say the Word of God became man so that you might learn from a man how to become like God. If one knows himself, he will know God, and knowing God will become like God. And Justin Martyr, In the beginning men were made like God, free from suffering and death, and we now deem worthy of becoming gods, little g, and having a power to become saints, sons of the Most High. Uh, deification is all over the patristic period, the church, you know, when the church fathers were around, but also going into the medieval period, but also many of our reformed Baptist forebears spoke of deification, and deification being the great crown jewel of the gospel. Let me give you a formal definition of deification. Again, saints, I've already done a sermon on this. You can go back and listen to it, but this is just a simply review. Deification is that doctrine that teaches man, and hear the words, man by grace, insofar as humanly possible, may be elevated to become like God. Again, man by grace can become like God. Now again, you might say, what in the world are you talking about? This, is, this sounds very strange, is it not? But consider the words though, becoming like God, not becoming a God, not becoming God. Again, like God is different from a God or God himself. No one who affirms deification, whether it be Lutheran, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Roman Catholic, Reformed, says that we become God. If they do, then they're Mormons. But rather, what they say is they become like God. Like God. Or we can say that man by grace becomes like God. Man by grace becomes like God. We participate in the divine life of God. And the Bible speaks of this. The Bible speaks of us participating in the divine nature, of God giving to us a share in what is His essentially. Revelation 21-23, Speaking of God, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Amen. God is the one who uh, will illuminate the new heavens and the new earth because of His glory that He has. But consider what Matthew 13.43 says of us. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. What we see is what is what God has essentially, which is glory, all these other things, man has derived. If God is shining like the sun, or, or we don't need, rather, the sun because God has illuminated it, then the righteous also will shine forth like the sun. Man then participates in the glory of God. First Timothy 16, uh, 6.16, speaking of God, who alone possesses immortality. Amen. God alone possesses immortality. Well, consider what 1 Corinthians 15.42 says. Paul, speaking of us, He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. You receive immortality. Um, Is immortality 
that which is essential or appropriate or innate to your nature? Of course not. But God gives to us a share in His immortality. How do we? How, and to say anything less will say will diminish, honestly, saints, your union with Christ. Honestly, if if Christ is the one that has gone before us and is the first fruits of a world harvest, and if we receive everything from Christ, then we necessarily mean that we receive an imperishable body. Only God alone has an imperishable body who is, of course, without body, but one that has no end. One that is fixed and unchangeable. In fact, you've heard me say this before, but what's the the ontological reason why there will be no tears in heaven? Not because you're in a space called heaven, and if you take you out of heaven, then you you are now in potency, potential to have tears. No, that's not the reason. The reason why there will be no tears in heaven is because your nature will be elevated to not undergo sorrow. That's the reason why there's no tears in heaven. You cannot undergo sorrow. Because you will be sharing in the immortal, incorruptible, and glorious life of God. What this means, saints, is our nature, without ceasing to be human, we don't turn into Superman, will be supernaturally elevated to participate in the divine life. And saints, this is God's desire for all people, especially for His saints, that we will share in the divine life of God. How do I know that? Consider 2 Peter 1. Through these, he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises. We talk about promises and the, the blessings earlier from Pastor Antonio. Well, what's, what does is, what is St. Peter say concerning these promises that we've had from God? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is Peter reducing what St. Paul says in Ephesians 1. Concise in it and saying, essentially, these gifts are for you to be elevated, to be like God. To become partakers of the divine nature. John Calvin, let us mark then that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God, and if we may so speak, to deify us. What's the goal of the gospel? What's the highest point of the gospel? It's for God's creatures to be made like their God. Saints, why why then, even when we consider salvation and justification, you have a right standing before God. Well, and even in heaven, you will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember we talked about, well, the righteousness of Christ is not something external to Christ that you receive, but rather it is Christ Himself. You are united to Christ. So in order to stand before God, one must be like God Himself. Because God can't look upon anything less. God must be look upon us and we must be one like Him. Calvin is correct. The goal of the gospel is not to just give us entrance into heaven. You're, hear me, young people. The goal of the gospel is not to just give you an entrance into heaven, but rather the goal of the gospel is to conform you into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. Essentially, is for the triune persons to impress who they are onto your soul so that you become like God. That's deification. That's the indwelling of the triune God, which we will talk about in just a moment. 
It is for God to elevate us and to be us to be like Him. That is the goal of that's the goal of the Christian. That's the goal of every human being, but they forfeit it because they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The goal for the Christian, the goal for every single one, yes, there's a natural end, which is now school, sports, job, whatever, but also there's this supernatural, pinnacle, final end that God has graciously given to us. And we now more and more although through a glass dark, but becoming more clearly see that we're actually going on to the road and moving up um, um, the hill to see our God who's in that, un- that cloud of unknowingness. This was saying also the motive of the incarnation as well. Why did the eternal son assume our humanity? As you already know, as I've already said many times before, the eternal son assumes what we are in order to give us a share in what is His. God becomes man so that we may be like Him. Why would God take on all of our faculties? Why would God take on the Eternal Son, take on a rational mind, a will, a heart, all these other things, so that He can heal the mind, the will, the passions, so that we can become like God, gives us a share in His divinity. In fact, this was the... This was the goal of Adam, was it not? First Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, what's that image of the man of heaven? It's not an angel. The image of the man of, of, of heaven is not an angel. It's not Adam in his prelapsarian before he fell state, but rather it is Jesus Christ ascended on high state. That's the state. That's the image of the man of heaven that we are not saints... Not saints we will have, which we will have, but you have right now. You have the image of the man of heaven. And eventually that image will be fully realized in heaven. So also, although we can say the reason why we were created was to worship God, very much so. The reason why we were created was to use our vocal cords to sing to our Lord. We can also say that in the creation of man, the goal, our end, with regard to who we are, was to become partakers of the divine nature. This is the goal that we see in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God made human beings in His own image. And saints, you want to think that imaging God is just some external experience. I remember I used to think about this. I wonder, like, what part of my body resembles God the most? You know, I know anything. God doesn't have a body, but is my nose similar to God's nose? Is my ears or things like that, right? No, no, no. We don't, young people, God doesn't have a body, so don't think that the image of God is an external thing, but rather, the image of God is internal and spiritual a likening that allows us creatures to be like God in knowing and loving. So the image of God are these powers of knowledge and of will. To know God and to love God. <clears throat> That's being made in the image of God. That's what we see and not going too far down the line, but that's what we see in the processions of the, tri- of the triune persons. 
the word comes forth from the Father by way of knowledge, and the Spirit comes forth by way of love. Well, that corresponds to our imaging as well. We know God and we love God. That is what's unique to us as humans. We have the ability to know God and to love God. These are the spiritual powers that God has given to us to render us to look like Him. Of course, we have fallen and those, those spiritual powers were marred by original sin. But what God does in the gospel is He gives to us grace. What does grace then do to us? It energizes those spiritual powers of knowing and loving so that when the Holy Spirit gives us those inklings to worship God, we can properly cooperate with Him. That's what happens in corporate worship. That those spiritual powers of knowing God and loving God are then energized so that you can cooperate with the Holy Spirit. To know God, to love God, to worship God the way He's prescribed. Okay, now how does this all... Where does this fit in with corporate worship then? Um, where, is this, where does this deification take place? Well, the process of becoming like God essentially has already started. We know it's a progressive sanctification. This is the process of becoming like God. However, we can say that God in Christ has established the church and its liturgy as the means of grace to communicate His divine life unto us. That corporate worship is the most fitting way by which God communicates Himself to us. In other words, the human destiny of man, and this is, I've talked to Pastor Antonio about this, um, rather we've both talked to each other about this, is that it's very interesting that the human destiny of man, which, to, which is to worship God this morning, to sing to God, and this afternoon to become like God, is seen most visibly in corporate worship. The, des- the destiny of man, your telos, your end, is, is most fittingly realized in corporate worship. <clears throat> it finds its fullest expression when the saints gather and we worship our Lord. As I say, God, through grace and by the things that we do in corporate worship, prayer, singing, confession of sin, the preached word, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, baptism, the benediction, these are all deifying acts of God. Now, that sounds very vague. How in the world does even something like asking our Lord to forgive us of our sins, how how does that make us like God? How does the benediction, God pronouncing peace unto us, make us like God? How does the preached word make us like God? Well, let me just, before we close, consider what we do. And its effects and its relationship to us being like God, becoming like God. Saints, consider the call to worship. The call to worship. As we have learned from Pastor Antonio, at the call to worship, God summons us to give to Him that which is properly owed and due. God commands us to give to Him worship. He summons His people. Now, at the call to worship, what must we do? We hear the word, what must we do? 
at that moment, when we hear the call to worship, we must align our will with God's will. In fact, in order for you to perform any act, your will must 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 thrust itself. Um, so, in the call to worship, it is God's will, which is for us to worship Him, and it's our will having to come in line with what He says. So at the very beginnings of corporate worship, at the call to worship, God is already changing our nature. He's already changing our nature. He's offering us grace so that our wills, our spiritual power of loving God may be energized to do something which we at times have, a, have the hardest trouble of doing and is what? Obeying God. Remember, the call to worship is really just God commanding us and we obeying Him. Well, in order for us to obey Him, we must, our wills must be aligned with God's wills to, to put into action what He has commanded us to do. So God, at the very moments of the call to worship, is energizing one of your spiritual powers, which is to love God. It is for your will to do what God has commanded us to do. We all pray, right? Lord, allow my will to be your will. Well, the call to worship, what God is doing is He's giving to you um, grace so that not merely at the call to worship, but even at the temptation of sin, even throughout your life, this is what we call a habitus, a habit. You You just have a habit of doing the will of God. Well, saints, that's what God does for us in corporate worship. He creates in us a habit of doing His will so that when we step outside of the walls of corporate worship, when Satan comes, when temptation comes, when our passions and our flesh arise, well, we already have a stable disposition of doing God's will. Well, we can say the process of becoming like God starts very early in the stages of corporate worship. As it was spoken this morning, so so wonderfully, that the singing to the Lord is a deifying experience. The singing to the Lord is a deifying experience, where, as it was said, the heart, all of who we are, is put out on the table. All of who we are must be put into action. Because, saints, the type of singing that God most delights in is not one who sounds like Whitney Houston or Luther Vandross. The type of singing that God delights most in is not the one who sounds the best or is the loudest. But the type of singing that God delights the most in is one who has one who has assented to the truth of the lyrics and the song, and that truth has reached down to the very depths of the will and the passions. And out comes from all of your being and act, which is what? Singing. As Pastor Antonio already told you this morning, of course. All of who we are, our minds, our wills, our passions, in essence, our hearts, must be on display when we sing. And based upon this, saints... Our wills and passions must drive us to sing boldly to our God. Saints, we heard this morning, everyone innately sings to God. But saints, not everyone sings to the correct God. 
And not everyone sings to God and also loves the things that they are singing about God. So therefore, singing is a graced act of God. You singing with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is God giving you grace? Again, energizing the powers of knowing and and loving so that you can perform something that is beyond what anyone else does, but what the pagans do. That is to sing to the triune God with all of who you are. As it was said this morning, we must sing with joy from the heart. As, uh, it was also said this morning, how we do that, saints, is by first assenting to the truth of the gospel. Assenting to the truth of God's word. Because what happens in judgment is, what you know becomes in the knower. You actually take ownership of what you know. And based upon what you know, as I already said this morning, based upon what you know, it drives the will and the passions. It brings with it everything. People who are married here, if um, how are you able to love your wife more or your husband more? By gaining more knowledge of them. Because you don't love more what you don't know more of. The more you know, the more you know of something, the more you're able to love something. So Praise God we're doing a series like this. Because the more you know about corporate worship, the more you'll love corporate worship. And this is what we think about saints when we come to singing. This is different from how the pagans sing with joy. The pagans sing, as it was said this morning, the pagans sing with their passions. That's what drives their singing. As it was said this morning as well, what needs to drive our singing, what needs to drive everything is the intellect. And the intellect carries with it the passions. Not the other way around. Not your emotions. Not what you feel. Not if you think that God is... What was it? Unshakable? Reckless. 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 That was... That song... That, those lyrics of those songs were made from the passions. In fact, I wasn't going to say this. I'm going to say it because I think it's fitting. There's a minister in town that says that... What he sees his church doing is during the worship and song, having a separate little corner where people have a notepad and a pen, and whatever comes to them, whatever they feel, they want to write down. They're going to write down new lyrics to songs based upon their mood and what they're already feeling. Um, Saints, what drives us is not our passions. What drives us is what we know, and it brings everything along with it. The confession, again, of our sins is God deifying us. Where we ask the Lord for forgiveness of our sins and where we renounce Satan and his work. Now, this is very, this is very um, strange, is it not? Because if we're saying that we become like God and asking for forgiveness, then we must ask this question. How do we become like God? Because God does not ask for forgiveness. God does not sin. So, how is the confession of sins a deifying act from God making us like Him when God does not Ask for forgiveness. Doesn't make any sense. Well, saints, when we ask for forgiveness, we're not just asking God to, to forgive us of our sins, but we're also asking God to help us after we've asked for forgiveness of sins. Making, say, God, make us holy as you are holy. Make us view sin the way you view sin. Make us view the goods of this world the same way you view the goods of this world. Not to worship them. 
delight in them, that's fine, but not worship them, not give to them. So when we ask for forgiveness of sins, remember saints, it is God giving to us a share in His divine life by, by us pleading, God, make us like you. Make us holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. The preached word. As we know in the preached word, God speaks to us through the preacher. But saints, we must ask, what is He doing in this? And I would argue that through the preacher, God is pouring grace into our souls. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, you, what you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in believers. Here Paul is saying that the preached word is not just merely words, but rather it's words that have the potency to enter into the soul and to activate all of who you are for you to be all that what God has called you to be. The preached word was at work in the hearts and minds of the people here, but also the preached word is at work in you as well. The the, the preached word has the power to enter into your soul, to energize who you are, to live unto God. That's what the preached word does. Preaching is more than just information and exhortation, but rather preaching is God working on the souls of His people. Now we have to ask, when God gives grace during the preached word, what part of the soul is that grace touching? Where does that grace go? I know it goes to my soul, and without getting into like all the divisions of the soul, where does it where does it go? What I would argue that God gives us grace in the preached word. God is heightening our intellect. God is heightening our intellect. Now, this doesn't mean, saints, that God is making us smarter. When I say God is heightening who you are, or rather your intellect, you think, oh well, I'm getting smarter. In this. No, what it means is when God heightens our intellect, He's heightening our intellect onto a higher light to believe more, uh, to believe more of, of the gospel and the truths of God's word by faith. That's the heightening of the intellect. You can have a PhD, you can have all these degrees, and if you're not saved, you know nothing. Because there is a higher light that God gives, which is the light of Christ. And that's what I'm going to argue as well. Remember the words of Christ in John 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Not knowing mathematics, not knowing philosophy. It is knowing Christ. That is eternal life. Well, saints, what does the preacher do? Well, when the preacher is preaching accurately and faithfully, we know that's not the preacher preaching. It is Jesus Christ preaching. It's Jesus Christ preaching to us. And here's the beauty of the preached word in us becoming like God. As the word goes forth, we know that Christ is speaking to us through the minister. And in speaking to us, what Christ is doing is not giving us merely words. He's giving us His mind. He's impressing His mind onto your mind so that you know the things of Christ. Jesus Christ comes forth from the Father by way of wisdom. 
Christ gives to you a share in the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? Christ and Him crucified. What's the stumbling block for the Jews? What was hard for them to believe? It was Christ crucified. You believe something that many of the smartest men and women throughout history laughed at. You have a divine and supernatural light. And every time the minister preaches, if he preaches accurately and faithfully, it is Jesus Christ giving to you His mind for you to think like Him. Now you might ask, how do I know that I have a share in Christ's mind? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Quick answer, by faith. You already have the mind of Christ if you believe upon Christ. You might say, how do I have the mind of Christ? Because you believe things about Christ that others don't believe. You believe supernatural truths. You believe that, yes, the eternal Son did become man and walk among us, but also that eternal Son died, but also was raised three days after and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming back. That's a supernatural truth that you believe. So saints, don't ever negate. It's just a sure fact that I believe upon Jesus Christ. Because that is a divine work of God where the eternal Son has taken what is His and He's impressed it upon the very heights of who you are and of your soul, which is your intellect. For you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe the things that Christ believed. The last two, the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10.16 Is the cup of blessing which we bless on a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break on a sharing in the body of Christ? I did many sermons on this. Simply put, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there is a sacramental union between that bread and that wine and that body and that blood that's in heaven. That the Holy Spirit takes us into very throne rooms of heaven and we say, yes, we feed upon Christ. But we're not feeding upon merely a man. We're feeding upon the body of a man that is united to God. So when you feast upon Jesus Christ, you're actually feasting upon God. It is Jesus Christ who gives Himself to us and He says, Take, eat, this is my body. Well, of course, Jesus Christ is not just a man, but also He's the God-man. When you're partaking of the wine, you're partaking of the bread, you're partaking of the deified humanity of Christ. And what Christ does is when we feed upon Him, and you know this, you know, in nutrition, right, you are, you, you are what you eat. <laughs> the things that, the things that you eat, if you eat hamburgers, um, all day like I do, um, then the nutritional value in the hamburger is going to enter into your body, and in many ways you're going to become the very nutritional things that you have put in your body. We all know this, right? You eat healthy, then you live a little bit healthier life from the inside. Well, if you eat the flesh of Christ, what happens to you? You become like Christ. You become like Christ. <clears throat> um, well, I won't say that. So, the last of the benediction. How is the benediction, lastly, a deifying experience, a deifying act? How does God make us like Him? <clears throat> Saints, I would argue that in the benediction, when God pronounces peace upon us, It is Jesus Christ who is giving to us the very same peace that he experienced in his earthly life and has now. God pronounces peace unto us. Go in peace. Well, 
that peace is nothing other than God Himself. And it's that same peace that Jesus Christ experienced on this earth. How do I know this? When everyone was abandoned in Christ on His way to Golgotha's Hill, remember what Christ said in John 16, 31-32. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe... Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. Even going up Golgotha's hill in the very heights of his intellect, Christ always had peace for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. The very peace that Christ experienced on his earthly life up Golgotha's hill and now experiences in his, in his, in his heavenly session is the same peace that he's giving to you, saint. The very same peace. So everything we do from top to bottom, it is God giving you himself his divine life. So corporate worship then is not really just us coming to God, clocking in our time card, and saying, here I am, I'm offering to you that which is properly due, but rather it is also God giving to us Himself His divine life to be like Him. To be, to be a true son and daughter of the Most High. I'm going to read a one last quote from this book and then we will close. Every liturgy is a privileged place and time in which the life of the Blessed Trinity is opened out to the world. And we can enter into it. Our divinization is the purpose of Christ's incarnation and the Paschal mystery and the purpose of all the sacraments. Divinization is not for the privileged few who are especially prayerful or saintly. It is the fruit of grace received by all Christ's members through the liturgy on earth which flowers forever in the praise and worship of God in eternal life. Divinization is salvation and is given to us through the awe-inspired mysteries of the church's liturgy. Let's pray.